Well, the question is, how important is a life? How valuable is a human being? We, we have baby dedications of which parents bring up their children and we all say that they're gifts from God and they make a public dedication, the fact that they will bring up their children in the Word of God. But how valuable is a child? How valuable is any person? There is no amount, in a sense, that could even match it, that, that a life is so valuable even beyond comprehension. Now, our, li- our society doesn't really believe that life is valuable. An entire group that is not even considered people, and that's in the womb, the unborn child. Michael Kinsley, who used to be, and I, I don't know, I don't, I don't get to watch Crossfire anymore. It's been years since I watched it. But Michael Kinsley used to be on Crossfire, and I watched him one night say that a dog is more valuable than an unborn piece of tissue, as he called it. He wouldn't say it was a person, but he said a dog is more valuable than that. In the Daily Oklahoma, and this is about four years ago, I read this letter. It said this. It said, what right does anyone have to tell any woman that she has to give, have another child when she already has what she thinks she can support, and without abortion there would be millions of unwanted children? And then went on to say, nothing is sadder than an unwanted child. Well, I would, I would disagree with that. I would say that probably a murdered child is sadder, is sadder. Maybe a child with no value is sadder. I read a study the other day that said the chance of being killed by terrorists overseas is one in 650,000. The chance of being murdered in Baltimore is one in 4,000. And the chance of being aborted in the womb is one in three. How value is a life? There's another group besides the unborn that is not necessarily considered valuable, and that is the aged, aged and the handicapped. There was a senator about two years ago that said... Some of the older people need to die and get out of the way and remove the burden of trying to take care of these people. Life in America has lost its value, whether it's the TVs, the movies, the songs. In fact, there's an estimate that uh, in a year, on all of the shows put together, there's over 50,000 murders on television if you watched it all. Stillwater News Press articles over the last three years, four years. Three teens arrested in death of grandfather. Four teens killed airman. Mother kills 12-year-old son. Woman kills five men. Two young preteens killed, if you remember just recently on that road. Somebody went and shot those two young little girls. Over and over, we become synthesized uh, to the value of a human life. So, how important is a life? Well, the truth is, God says that every life is valuable because every life Everyone is made in the image of the living God. Psalm 139. Each one is unique. Each one is formed by God. Regardless of how our society views life, God says every life is special. Every life is made in the image of the living God. This evening, as we look at our study, we see the value of life. And as we continue, remember... The flood is over. Noah has come off the ark. God has judged the world. Every creature died except Noah and those persons and animals connected with him on the ark. God in his grace built, chose Noah to build the ark and to keep him safe. So when Noah came off, he worshipped God. And, and there would be a promise that he would never destroy the earth again by flood. This evening, the emphasis is on value of life. And we'll see it as we go through it. Let me break down the passage for you. First of all, in verses 1 through 7, we see God's command. And that's talking about what about life and what about the lifeblood and all of that. And then verses 8 through 19, or at, you know, and we're going to stop at 17 tonight, but uh, 8 through 17, we see the covenant 
God's covenant that he makes with mankind. So let's begin. They're coming off the ark. He has worshipped God. In fact, look back at chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So there is his worship as he comes off. And a burnt offering is a picture of total, total dedication. And that's what you find. He's built, totally dedicating his life. Now, God begins to give some instructions. And it's some commands. And it has to deal with man to the animals and then man to man. And we see the value of life. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, God blesses Noah. There's a Hebrew word baruch, which means to bless. Sometimes you'll see the Bible where it'll say, And man blessed God. Or it, it, Actually, it says praise because the Hebrew word can mean two things. It can mean to praise or it can mean to bless. Whenever you find it in the Hebrew or in the Bible, when it's man talking about God, it's always man praising God. But when it's God to man, it's always man, it's always God blessing man. And so in this it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here we see the whole idea of instructions, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, it does, because it's the same instructions that he gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, because the whole world's population is actually going to come from these eight people. And... uh, Powerful. Now, there's, there's going to be some changes. A lot of things changed after the flood. And, and, and let me just say this. If, if you read the scripture and, you, and you, you're just watching after the flood, you notice that people don't live near as long as they did before the flood. What a change where people are living 900 and 800 years, and after the flood, some of them are living 500, and then within two to three generations, it's down to 200 to 300 to 100 and something. And so we see that the change happened because apparently that cloud cover, that canopy above the earth, that, that changing had something to do with it. We're also going to notice that there's a change between how man and animals fit with each other. Notice verse 2. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are given. He says now there's going to be the fear of mankind with animals. It seems to indicate that before the flood, maybe animals weren't scared of people in the way they are now. I mean, you ever go out and, and you try to, you know, here's a little rabbit, and you go, I'm going to go get that rabbit. But if, as soon as you get close to the rabbit, it hops off, and you get a little closer, it hops off. And you say, I can't catch the rabbit. Why? Because it won't stay still. It won't, you know, and you, there's a bird. I remember there was a little boy, I was going to try to catch a bird. I remember it's in my yard, so I'm going to sneak up to this bird. You know, you stand there for a minute, and you think the bird's not watching you, and you keep getting, and then it just goes away, and it does. That's exactly, you know, they're, they're scared of us. He says, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. What apparently had been harmony before the fall, before the flood is now not harmony. And, and we see the dominion of man. Notice what he says. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given the dominion of man, that animals are for mankind. They always have been. You know, there are a lot of people who talk about animals' rights, animals' rights. Well, we have the right to eat them. We have the right to love them, play with them, keep them. Take care of them. It, we, it, as human beings, when made in the image of God, we should take care of animals. We should not be cruel or mean. But animals are for people. God put them on this earth for us. Subdue the earth. Use wisely. He goes on to say in verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now, apparently before the flood, maybe all they ate. 
were plants, of course. And then we seem to think about that because remember in the garden, he said of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And, and, and we didn't see anything changed after the fall and all that. But it seems to me now that after they come off the ark, he actually says, all of these animals, you, you can eat them. You can eat them. Now, there's a restriction in a sense on how people do that. And here's what he says in verse 4. Verse 3 again says, Every moving thing that is alive on the earth will be food for you. I've given to you just as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. He says, listen, when you're going to eat an animal, you drain the blood out because the life is in the blood. Don't eat the blood because it, it, to, to eat or drink the blood is, in a sense, representing the life of that animal, and the life belongs to God. And he's saying, when you kill an animal, drain the blood out, because he said, you're not to eat the blood. You're not to eat the blood. You know, one of the things that when they were going into the pagans, when, when they were going to take land and stuff, he said, don't do what they do, because some of the, the pagans were drinking the blood. He said, don't do that. Don't do that, because the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17 says the blood is what makes the covering for sin. That without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. Jesus Christ's blood is what pays for sin. And so the idea that blood belongs to God because the life belongs to God. That's just the way he puts it. And so he says, you shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is the blood. Can't do it. So as far as man to animals, we can kill animals, but don't take the blood. Drain the blood out because that life, the, rep, the blood represents the life of that creature and that creature belongs to God. Now he moves to man's relationship with man. And look what he says. Surely I will require your lifeblood. What? From every beast I will require it. And from every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of a man. The idea here is there's an accountability in lifeblood. And on the chart, lifeblood, when there is a shedding of blood, there is an accountability. That's the way it is. He says, I require your life blood from every beast I will require it. You know what he's saying? That if an animal kills a person, what happens to that animal? It's supposed to be put to death. What happens today when an animal kills a person? What, what do they usually do with that animal? They put it to death. You know, they'll say, in the zoo, you know, the keeper was there and the animal came up and got the person killed. And, they, they, and the animal was put to sleep. Or if a dog attacks a person and sometimes kills people, all of those animals are put to death. God says that when there is a death, when there is a shedding of blood, there is an accountability there. Surely I will require your life breath from every beast I will require it. Powerful. If an animal kills a person, that animal is supposed to die. Notice, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. If a person kills another person, and we, we're talking here about murder. We're talking about a person taking the life of another person. There are accidents that happen, and the Bible understands about accidents. There's war. There are times when one nation is fighting another nation, or you're defending life and those kind of things. But he's talking about murder. He's talking about when you kill another person, he says, he says, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require that life. Life is valuable. If one is killed, then there has to be an accountability there. If a man ends the life of another man, life is required. You're going to find both throughout the Old Testament and New Testament capital punishment. Let me show you something. I don't, even, I don't want to go to the verses, but in, in, the, uh, in the Mosaic Law, when there was somebody walking and they found a body, they found somebody who was dead, somebody who had been killed. Best they could tell, somebody, somebody killed this person. And they, and they said, who did it? Nobody knew who did it. It was just a body out in the field. 
And what they would say is, okay, since we don't know who did this and every life is valuable and there's an accountability, they would measure and find the closest town, the closest place that that body was, and then that town was required to offer sacrifices to cover the sin of whoever did that. Because every life was valuable. And, and so the bottom line throughout the Old Testament New Testament, there is what we call capital punishment. When somebody murders someone, they're supposed to be put to death. He makes it very clear in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. He says whenever, he makes it very clear that when a person kills somebody, then by man that blood is to be shed. Now, Mankind, man is responsible to put to death those who murder others. Now, I know that that's not always very popular, and there are a lot of political people and all this, but I'm going to tell you the truth. If a person murders someone, and they're found guilty of murdering someone, they should be put to death. That's what the Scripture teaches. We'll talk more about it in just a minute, but that's what we're talking about. Mankind has the responsibility to deal with people who kill people. And the way it's written here, by man, now under the, under the Mosaic law, as, as a rule, there were the elders of a city that made requirements. The Mosaic law required that if, if somebody killed somebody, that family member, family members had the right, as what they called the goel, the kinsman, the kinsman avenger, they had the right to go kill that person if they murdered someone in their family. As time went on by, they had the cities of refuge that a person could flee to if they accidentally killed somebody. If they accidentally killed somebody, they got to a city of refuge. That family could not kill that person because it was an accident. But if a person murdered and got to a city of refuge and the elders realized that it was murder, they would be put to death. There is a responsibility by mankind that when someone murders... They are to be put to death. The debate today is whether we should have the death penalty. I just want you to... Let me me do this. Instead of turning over there, I just want to read to you. This is Romans chapter 13. Most of you know these verses, but and you don't have to turn there, but I just want you to read this to you. This is Romans chapter 13, New Testament in a sense, because I've had people say, this is Old Testament, this is New Testament. It's both. Romans 13 says this. Every... This is verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. We're to come under the authority of our government. But there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. What that literally says is the governments of this world are established by God. The book of Daniel says that God is the one who raises up kings and sets down kings. And you have, regardless of your political views, in a couple of months... There's going to be somebody raised up to power, and you say, oh, I don't see how that could happen. God is in control, and regardless of how it goes, we have to say God is the one that raises up kings and sits down kings, people in responsibility and places of position. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. When you break the laws, you're going against God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. There are consequences when you disobey the laws. And then he says, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. If you do what is right, you should not fear your government. Not supposed to. Now, they're bad governments. But normally, if you do what's right, he says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good. And then he says this. For it is a minister, talking about the, the government, the people. It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. It does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
In Romans 13, Paul says it is the government's responsibility that when people violate the law, when they are evil, when they do wrong things, it is the responsibility of the governing authorities to deal with that. And so, bottom line, that's what's supposed to happen. Now, so, the death penalty. He says this, whoever shed man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. shed. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. Man is made in the image of God. Every life is valuable and every life is made in the image of God. God formed and planned. Davies in his, uh, in his commentary on Genesis says, it is clear that life is sacred and murder is utterly evil. Because each life is made in the image of God, the one who kills another by man, that one is to be put to death. Walt Kaiser is an Old Testament scholar and, and is brilliant. And here's what he said. He said, if a society refuses to take the life of those who murder, then that society will stand under God's judgment. And the value, respect, and dignity of life in that society will be diminished. There's no doubt about that. If people murder and the society does not deal with that, then the value, respect, and dignity of human life in that society is diminished. People say this, well, the death penalty, it is not a deterrent. I don't care whether it is or not. Let me show you something. That's not the issue. The value of life, it's the value of life, not a deterrent. We don't say have a death penalty because it is a deterrent. It may be. But we have a death penalty because of the value of life. And there's one thing for sure. The person who murdered and is put to death, that one will never murder again. Okay? So, this is a pretty strong statement here. Realize the Old Testament taught the value of life. You realize there weren't any prisons in the nation of Israel? There weren't prisons. They didn't put people in prison. You remember the first person they ever, they ever put in a prison? They put somebody in a prison. The guy went out on Sabbath and he picked up sticks. And he started doing work. And they all said, hey, you're not supposed to do any work. You know what? The, he just gave us the big commandments. And what do you think you're doing out there? So they got him and they put him and they had people guarding him until they could find what God said to do. What did God say to do? Do you know? You know? They put him to death. Now, we'd say that's a little bit harsh, isn't it? Well, that, you take that up with God. That's not part of it. I don't know anything about that. But I knew this. That in the, in the, under the Mosaic law, if you stole, you did not go to jail. They caught you and you were required to pay back sometimes four to five times what you stole. And then you went on your way. Now, people after that would probably look at him and go, you can't trust that guy because he's, he's a thief. But they didn't put him to death and they didn't put him in prison. There were certain crimes that they did that they were put to death. The value of life, there is nothing that can be given, no amount of money or anything that can match a life. Only the life of the one who murdered, because man is made in the image of God. It's called divine retribution. Pat Buchanan said this, listen to this. A modern society that outlaws the death penalty does not send a message of reverence of life, but a message of moral confusion. We tell the murderer that no matter who he kills or what he does, his life is secure. We will find ourselves at the mercy of criminals who have no fear of putting innocent people to death. Final instructions is the value of life. Realize that when the murderer is put to death, that shows the value of life. So he ends this little section by repeating his original statement, and that is, as for you, you be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And so the bottom line is fill the earth. And so what we have seen, 
is in relationship man to the animals. You can eat them, but the blood belongs to God. Don't drink the blood. Don't you know drain the blood out. The second part. In relationship man to man, if a man or animal murders, if a man or animal kills a man, they are to be put to death. Now, I'm talking about murder there. I'm not talking about an accident. The Bible is very clear. It talks about two guys. It says, what if two guys are out there and they're chopping and the guy's axe head comes off and hits the other guy in the head and kills him? He is not a murderer. It was an accident. And he flees to the city of refuge and he is safe. So we're talking about murder here. And that's a very powerful thing. Now, why all this? Because man is made in the image of God and every life is valuable. Now we turn to the covenant. And this is, once again, shows the value of life. God talked about the, the covenant back in chapter 6. Listen, you don't have to turn there. Chapter 6, verse 18. God said, this is before they're even getting on the ark. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God is making a covenant. There are two kinds of covenants in the Bible that we'll find. There's what we call conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. We understand what that means in a conditional covenant both parties we're talking about when God makes a covenant with man a conditional covenant is that both parties have something to do God says I will do and you will do an unconditional covenant is where God makes it and, and he is the only one who has the responsibility we're going to find that this is an unconditional covenant God does not have conditions for man in this covenant God says this is what I'm going to do now the covenant is very special Derek Kidner who wrote a commentary on, on uh, the book of Genesis says this he talks about I think go to the next one. I think there should be three things there. He talks, he says, this covenant, the breadth of this covenant is with every living creature. The length of the covenant, it is everlasting. And the conditions of this covenant is unconditional. It's not what we do. So the breath is every living creature, both man and animal. The length of it is everlasting, and the condition is, in a sense, it's unconditional. It's totally undeserved. The purpose of the covenant, God will not destroy life from the earth by a flood. Look at chapter, uh, look at, uh, chapter 9, verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, now watch this. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now, he's making it, and then, he, now watch. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all that comes out of the ark, every beast of the earth. So first of all, the breath of it is every creature. Now watch the next part of it. I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, this, the, the length of this is everlasting. Never again will he destroy this earth by the flood. And you can see the grace of this thing, this unconditional. It's not what he said. He didn't say, now, if you do the following, I will not destroy the earth by flood again. He didn't say that. He said, I will never destroy it again. It's unconditional. The breath is every creature. The length is everlasting. The grace is unconditional. He gives a sign of the covenant. Verse 12. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all, not some, all successive generations. The sign of the covenant. And what I want you to see is, that, realize that he didn't want them to forget. The sign shows that God has no pleasure in destruction. Now we should all say, Do you realize this covenant affects us, right? It's for all generations. Are we a generation that followed this? Now, this was a long time ago, but is this covenant dealing with us now? Do we have any fear that God one day is going to destroy this whole world by flood? We don't. Why? Because he made a promise. 
I made a covenant with you, Noah, all these animals, and with every successive generation that will ever come. And here's what he says. Here's the sign of the covenant. I will set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. So it's going to be a bow. That's going to be the sign. What bow? What are we talking about? A rainbow. This, when a storm comes, many times when a storm comes, you can get in the right place, and with the sun, you can look over things. So look at the rainbow. What should you think of when you see a rainbow? I mean, that's his promise. Now, the way he phrases this is a little bit different than that, but that's what we see. Now, the bow, when you see the bow, it represents two things. Some say the picture, the bow is a picture of a bow for war. It says, as in the Old Testament, sometimes they were talking about how God shoots the lightning arrows from God. But it's really a picture of grace. Because if you go to Revelation chapter 4, there's a rainbow around the throne. And it's a picture of the grace of God. Martin Luther said this, a bow unstrung means the war is over. A bow turned upward pointing to God shows his joy and his pleasure. We often think that people will see the bow and remember what God has done. And, and that's true. I mean, every time you see a rainbow, you could say, there's the rainbow. And that means that God will never destroy the earth by flood. But notice what he says, because he doesn't say, when you see the rainbow, look what he says, verse 13 again, I shall set my bow in the cloud, it will be a sign of covenant between me and the earth that shall come about when I set it, bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud. Now watch the next verse. And I, God, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. It's God who says, I will see it. I will remember. We know this. Does God ever forget anything? Does God know the end from the beginning? Does God know every aspect? Do you think God's going to go, oh, 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 the bow. Yeah. Oh, I'm not supposed to do anything. I now remember that. That's not... So when he says this, he's saying, from my side, I want you to know I will never forget what I say. And I think that, humanly speaking, we see that. And we could say, okay, God's seeing that and he's not going to bring the flood. But it, we remember what? He's not going to bring a flood. I will remember my covenant, which is, this is verse 15 again, between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Never again. Never going to happen. Life is too valuable. To be destroyed again by the flood of waters. Look what he says in verse 16. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Do you notice that? It's everlasting covenant. As long as there is this created world... And see, this world's going to go on a long time because even when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up a kingdom, he'll reign on this earth for how long? A thousand years. So it's got to, if, if it all ended right now with the church being taken out and then the tribulation for seven years and then Jesus coming back, there's still at least a thousand seven years left on this earth if it all, if Jesus came right this second. And so he says, when the bow is in the cloud, I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that's on the earth. It's every animal. It's eternal. every person, every animal, every creature. It is eternal. 
and it's unconditional. And then verse 17 sort of sums it up. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant. As Noah comes off the ark, God wants him to realize the supreme value of life. And he gives a command. The command is the death of a person. There is requires, the death of a person requires accountability. And if a person murders a person, that person is to be put to death. We see again, he says, the covenant that I will never destroy life by the flood, everything. There's an everlasting, unconditional covenant dealing with the flood on this earth and the destruction of human beings. It's not going to happen that way, ever. So what have we seen? We see Noah comes off the ark, and there are commands and covenant. We see for the man and the animals, you can eat them, but not the blood, not the life, because the life's in the blood. Man to man, if a man murders, he is to be put to death. Why? Because he's made in the image of the living God. The covenant, I will never destroy this earth by flood again. And the sign is the rainbow. He sees. He sees and remembers. And, of course, we see it and say, I know he remembers because he never forgets anything. Let me give you some applications. And if you want to, we'll have some questions or comments or whatever. The first application is realize the value of each human life. Every person is made in the image of the living God. How do you view others? Do you look at some people and think that you're better than they are? Or that you're more valuable than they are? I mean, sometimes we look at people and go, who is that? What should we say? Every person is valuable. You know, this morning, I'm just going to be honest with you, I was sitting there and people were coming in, and it was so neat. And and, uh, and a, a guy that goes to our church brought in, he said, Jebby, I want you to meet my granddaughter. And there was this little girl, and she's 13, and she had the biggest smile you've ever seen. And she was beautiful. And in our world, some people might not say she's beautiful. And in this room, I look at this room and all of you look good to me. All of you are handsome and pretty and sharp and neat and special and valuable. But in our world, they wouldn't believe that. Isn't it amazing how unique and beautiful Every person is. And we've got to start thinking that way because sometimes we let this world shape us. And if you're not like the person on TV or the person in the magazine or the person in the movie or this real smart person over here that we think is smart, this person over here, if we're not that, we say, well, that's not, that, that's not as good. Every person is made in the image of God. God created you. You. He formed you. You're unique. We shouldn't have a bad self-image because we're made in the image of the living God and we're unique and a creation of God and there's nobody else like you. And let me tell you, I've heard this over and over. People say, I wish I was like this. No. You need to be like you. God made you, you. And you're unique and special. And uh, I mean, there's a young guy, you know, Jody and I were talking about he was always a small guy growing up. I was always the smallest in class, the shortest guy. And I used to say, oh, why can't I be taller? Why can't I be taller? You know what? It doesn't really matter. It came to a point in my life that I realized it doesn't matter whether you're tall or short. It doesn't matter. And if it does to a person, they don't understand. They just don't grasp it. Each one of us is unique 
indifferent. And when we think about ourselves, realize, think about others when we realize the value of human life. Every person, the unborn, the aged, the handicapped, valuable or not, they're all valuable. Tim Stafford wrote this. He said, Americans have this mistaken view of life. Life is like the big bell curve. You go up, and as you get older, you get more valuable. Then you get to a point, and then it starts getting less and less valuable, and you get over here. And he says, you know, you get up to about 45, 50, and then you start going down. That's Americans. You're not near as valuable. Well, God says you're valuable. Each one in this room is unique and valuable. Let me tell you what you do. You do this. You enjoy life. Enjoy life. Enjoy every day that God gives you. Because you don't know how many days you're going to have. Realize who you are in Christ. We have the gift of eternal life and the gift of life every day. And every day you get to have contact with other people that that you can love and enjoy and have fun. So enjoy life. Use your life for the glory of God. You've got these days, and that's why the Bible says teach us to number our days. Our lives are unique and special, and we have this time, this time to glorify God in our lives. And then look at others as unique and special. They're all valuable. They're all made in the image of God. What can we do to help People. What about the unborn, the aged, the handicapped? Christians, we got to have a different worldview than the rest of the world. Second application is just remember this, that God's covenant preserves human life. First of all, by, by this covenant, the human life that he says, I'm never going to destroy human life again by this flood. This is the sign. Of course, the sign is the rainbow. And so we think of it that way. But you know what? There's another one. Think about this. The new covenant. Jesus Christ shed his blood of the new covenant. And you think about it, that God has provided a way to save human life. And that is through Jesus Christ and the shed blood. And you think about the three things, the breath, the length, the grace. The breath, Jesus Christ died on the cross for everybody, whoever will come, whoever will believe. The length, it's everlasting. I give you eternal life. And it's all unconditional. It's the grace of God. Whoever believes has the gift of eternal life. So powerful. I hope and pray that as we think about going into this community that we'll see people as valuable and unique regardless of how they look or how they think and that we'll realize that we have the greatest message of all that God has given the covenant, the new covenant through Jesus Christ and all who believe have eternal life. May we realize the value of life that God would send his son to die for every person so they could have eternal life. Well, let's pray. If we've got questions, comments, we'll, we'll deal with it. Heavenly Father, thanks for the passage. Thank you, Lord, that we see the value of every human life, and we see the uniqueness, and then we see the covenant that God made. And So, Lord, may we realize that, uh, that we are unique, that God created each one of us, that, and, and, and no matter what the world thinks about each person, each one is beautiful and special and unique, and we enjoy this life and live for the glory of God and, and all of these things. And then, and then, Lord, thank you for the covenant, the first of all, that you'll never destroy the earth again by flood. And then, Lord, thank you for the new covenant through Jesus Christ, how he shed his blood and gives us eternal life simply by faith. Thank you, Lord, for this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.